Okay, so uh, if you've been coming, we have been talking about, we started this semester talking about anthropology. What's anthropology? The study of man. Then we moved into hamartiology, which is study of sin. And now we're beginning into soteriology, which is study of salvation, okay? And so uh, what we're doing with uh, study of salvation is we're beginning, we began with this idea called the, the kingdom. And so this is kind of the storyline of Scripture to help us see how all of these sort of diverse uh, stories in Scripture fit together. Think of, if you will, kind of each little story that you read in Scripture is a piece of a puzzle. And, uh, and so viewed in and of itself, it can be kind of difficult to discern what it means until you fit it together in that entire picture. That's what the message of the kingdom is. And then along the way, we have introduced this idea of covenants, kind of the, the backbone of Scripture. So all the stories kind of put flesh uh, to it, but covenants are kind of the backbone. They're the skeleton of Scripture. They're God's response to sin. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. And we said that, that covenants are God's redemptive response to sin. They're God's redemptive response to sin. And if we un- misunderstand uh, the covenants, then what we end up doing is kind of creating this amalgamation, creating this sort of uh, uh, a mixture of the gospel. And so we need to dive into uh, the covenants. So we'll spend six weeks on covenants. And so uh, we, we spent a week on, uh, on the covenant, uh, just kind of covenant theology in general. Last week we talked about the covenant with Adam. This week we're talking about the covenant with Noah. Then we'll do the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai. Uh, called the Mosaic Covenant, then the Davidic Covenant, uh, and then all of these things pointing towards this new reality called the New Covenant that we see inaugurated uh, in, uh, in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be uh, talking about uh, today. So today we're going to talk about the covenant with Noah, the covenant that God makes with Noah in the book of Genesis. If you grew up in church, you heard the story of, uh, of Noah, and we always use it kind of as a kid's story, which is really strange because this story is really terrifying. It's actually kind of like a horror movie. Uh, yes, God does save eight people, but he also destroys every other person on the face of uh, the earth. And, uh, and so uh, I did some, by the way, I did some uh, a Google search uh, for tr- trying to, to see what are the estimates for what the population was at the time of the flood. And I got everything from like 10,000 up to 10 trillion, which is a huge range. Like imagine you do your uh, taxes this week and your accountant says you either owe $10,000 or $10 trillion. You'd fire your accountant, right? And, uh, and so we don't know what, uh, what the population was, but God saves eight people, everybody else, uh, is wiped out in God's judgment, in his wrath. We'll talk a little bit about that as we, uh, as we get into the story. So I want to kind of set the stage by talking about the context, the context for this Noahic covenant, Noahic covenant, that's whether you pronounce that, not Noahic, Noahic covenant, the covenant that God makes with uh, Noah. So what's happening around there? What's that in response to? So what's immediately preceding this is that there is Uh, uh, God's uh, word that he gives to Noah, that he is going to destroy every living thing by means of a cataclysmic flood. Uh, God says he's going to destroy every living thing by means of a cataclysmic uh, flood. And, uh, And the reason that he gives is because of sin. 
that mankind in the, uh, the chapter leading up to this, so in chapters 4 and 5 and then going into 6, we see this sort of unraveling. So Genesis 3, there is the fall of mankind, and then 4, 5, and 6, you see how quickly uh, mankind just unravels into depravity. And, uh, and so as a result of this, uh, God is going to appear to Noah and he's going to say, I'm going to destroy all of the earth. Now, if any part of you thinks that's unfair, that's cruel and unusual punishment, then I think you have to go back and you have to understand what's happening in Genesis 3 and 4 and 5. Because what's happening there is you see this depiction of just how depraved mankind is. If you doubt the justice or the goodness or the rightness of God's judgment that he pours out upon the world, then what it really reveals is that your hamartiology is deficient. Your understanding of sin is going to be deficient. That's why we spent a couple of weeks talking about the doctrine of sin before we get into the doctrine of salvation because you can only appreciate God's salvation, God's salvific work, if you first understand just how wretched and evil and depraved mankind really uh, is. And so God's response to human sin is seen through two different lenses. On one hand, you see his wrath, you see his judgment. And on the other hand, you see his mercy, the mercy that's shown here in this Noahic covenant, but his wrath and judgment first. That the goal of creation, we talked about this when we talked about the Adamic covenant, the goal of creation is that God created mankind and he made them in his image and he said, now go and fill the earth so the earth would be filled with my image so that the entire earth would, would uh, be a reflection of my goodness and my glory and all of these sorts of things. And instead, the earth now is filled with unrighteousness. And so God is going to fill the earth with a flood of wrath and, uh, and judgment in order to wash away not only sin, but also sinners. But we also see mercy in the midst of this judgment. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to look in uh, Genesis 6, 8, I might have put it in your your notes uh, as well. Genesis 6, 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the reason is in, uh, in verse 9, why? Because he's righteous, he's blameless, he walks with God. So God covenants with him because he's righteous. But what's interesting is that you learn as you read the rest of Scripture, you learn the reason that he is righteous uh, is because God has first already initiated a relationship with him because of the doctrine of elect, election. God has elected him and sanctified him and given him a, a heart and a mind to know and walk with God. And so this is a really important thing to recognize about covenants in general, that oftentimes a covenant is not given to establish a relationship between God and a particular person or God and a particular people. Oftentimes a covenant is something that comes in to an already established relationship. Noah is already in relationship with God by means of uh, election, by means of God's mercy poured out upon him. So God mercifully elects him and, and uh, causes him uh, to be righteous, and then God covenants uh, with him. And so it's kind of like uh, marriage. We've talked about marriage as being a uh, covenant. When you get married, you formalize, you legalize uh, the covenant, uh, but there is already a relationship that is established. Uh, unless you're growing up 
you know, hundreds of years ago, wherever the husband and the wife just meet each other there at, uh, at the altar or whatever it might be. And uh, so this is a picture that oftentimes a covenant is not something that just comes out of the blue. It's someone God already has a relationship with by his grace. And then he formalizes that. He, he, he legalizes that here in, uh, uh, in uh, covenantal language. And so the first explicit mention that we get of a covenant uh, there in uh, not only the, the account of Noah, but really in the entire Bible. The first explicit mention is in chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. So check out those. Those are in your notes. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. There's his wrath and judgment. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But here's his mercy and grace and love. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives uh, with you. So the the first mention, uh, the first explicit mention is in chapter 6. We really see the covenant in detail later in the story. So chapter 7 and 8 are going to describe the flood itself. We'll skip over the details of the flood itself and all of the ways that they make the, uh, the ark with the pitch and the bitumen and all those kinds of things, and uh, we'll move into chapter 9. I want to read a large chunk of, uh, of chapter 9, and you should have this in your notes. 1 through 17, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you uh, everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man from his fellow man I will require a reckoning from the life, for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. A little bit more. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so I want to talk about just a few different things that we see here within uh, this sort of covenantal language. So you see the word covenant uh, is used. It's used uh, seven times here. But not only is the word used, we've talked before, whenever we talked about the Adamic covenant, we said the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1 through 2, uh, 1 through 3 actually. Uh, you don't see the word covenant there, but the, the, the concept of a covenant is certainly there. 
Uh, well, here, not only is the word used, but you see all the different concepts, all the different aspects, all the various elements of covenants are here in, uh, in Genesis 9. There's a sovereign ruler, a sovereign ruler and a lesser, it's called a vassal, a lesser vassal, a sovereign ruler who comes to a lesser vassal. There's stipulations there's responsibilities that the sovereign ruler is going to say, this is what I am requiring you to do. And there's also uh, some sort of element in which the sovereign is going to covenant himself to do these certain things. There's some sort of sign that's placed in a sacred place. We talked about this whenever uh, Zach talked about covenants in general, that oftentimes there is this element, there's this thing uh, that, that functions as a sign, and it's typically placed in a sacred place, like the Ten Commandments are placed in the ark, which is then placed in, uh, in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle or the temple or whatever uh, it might be. And it's interesting, though, that one element that you don't see here is the element of a, uh, of a curse. Man has responsibilities, but God's faithfulness is not at all dependent on man's faithfulness. And so we'll talk about that here in a little bit uh, with the idea of this being unconditional, that there is, although there are these divine stipulations and responsibilities that God is not saying, I will only fulfill my responsibilities if you fulfill your responsibilities. So that's the first thing that we see is not only is the word covenant used multiple times in this concept uh, or in this context, but the concept itself saturates the text. All these different various elements of a covenant is there. The second thing to notice is who is uh, the sovereign. Most of the time, it's just the generic uh, word for God. Elohim is the, uh, the Hebrew word that is used. Interestingly enough, the, uh, the covenantal name that's represented by the, uh, the tetragrammaton, uh, sort of the, the name that God gives and says, this is my name, it only appears uh, once. Uh, it is all capital uh, Lord in our translation, and it's only used once in the entire chapter. It's in chapter 9, verse 26, which is actually the blessing of Shem. So uh, Abraham has three kids. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or Japheth. And, uh, and so he has three kids. Uh, only one of those, though, is kind of the, uh, the line through which the Messiah would come. And that is uh, Shem. It's actually why uh, someone who is uh, you know, guilty of persecuting or blaspheming Jews or something like that is called anti-Semitic. It's because of this relationship with Shem. And, uh, and so what you see here, though, the covenantal name is only used in relationship to, uh, to Shem. There is a sense in which there is a universal covenant. God makes a covenant with all Abraham and all of his kids, with Ham, with Japheth, and with Shem, but there's a covenant within the covenant. It's only through Shem that we're going to see these other covenants come about, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then ultimately the new covenant in, uh, in Jesus Christ. And so although there is this larger covenant, the Noahic covenant is universal. It applies to uh, all people everywhere who are uh, descended from, uh, from Noah. Uh, there is this particular covenant that is passing through uh, Shem in particular. The next thing to, to notice is that uh, it has this language of establishing. If you look there in uh, Genesis 9, uh, a number of times it talks about establish. I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant. Anybody remember there are two different uh, uh, temporal aspects to a covenant? 
The second one is to establish. Does anyone remember the verb for the first one? It's to cut, to cut. We talked about this uh, before. We'll talk about it again uh, next week as we get into the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Typically, what happens with a covenant is there's the initial inauguration of the covenant, and that's called cut. I cut my covenant with you. It's, It's karat in Hebrew, karat berit. I cut my covenant. And then secondary to that, there is this establishment. It's the making of the reservation versus the confirming of the reservation. You cut the covenant. That's symbolized by uh, in the story of Abraham where he takes the animals and he cuts them into, and then you walk through the two animals, and the kind of the idea there is, if I break my covenant, may I be broken into. May I be broken asunder as these animals are broken into. That's the initial stage. And then the secondary stage is the establishment. And so you notice here in this language, it doesn't talk about God cutting a covenant. It talks about him establishing, which is part of why we said that what happens in the Adamic covenant is that initial cut. So in a sense, you could say the Adamic covenant is God cutting a covenant with mankind, and the Noahic covenant is God establishing. It's his ratifying. It's his confirming uh, the covenant that he has made uh, with, uh, with mankind. And so... That's the third thing to notice. Fourth thing to notice, notice all the similarities to the Adamic covenant. All the things that we talked about last week. All the different imagery, the allusions that you see between this text and what we see in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, So look back there at Genesis 9, 1 through 17. You have it in your notes. Look back there and just notice some of this uh, imagery uh, the illusions that, uh, that point back to uh, the garden. You have the command to be fruitful and multiply, the exact same command that's given uh, to Adam. You have references to beasts and to birds and even to, to creeping things. We talked about this when we talked about uh, Romans 1, creeping things. Herpeton, it's where we get uh, herpetology, which is the study of uh, like serpents and lizards, reptiles and those kinds of things. So references to beasts and birds and creeping things, the exact same language that's used in the creation account. You have the reference to mankind as being created in the image uh, of God. You have the reference to a cursing of the ground. God said he's going to curse the ground in the flood. But what happens as a result of Adam's sin is the ground is cursed. So uh, from the sweat of your brow, and now there is going to be uh, this difficulty, this division between man and creation. As the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, so now the waters cover the earth. And a wind, that's the same word as spirit in Hebrew, a wind, ruach, Uh, a wind is going to blow over it. And what happens? It begins to bear vegetation. Again, all of this imagery, uh, hints of creation. God explicitly gives food to his creatures as God had done in uh, the the garden. And then immediately after, there's the shedding of human blood uh, as there was uh, immediately after the story in the garden. There's Cain and Abel. So now here, immediately after giving the covenant with Noah, there is going to be this provision made for, uh, for uh, murder and, uh, and those sorts of things. And then what happens? If you were to continue on reading the story, uh, Noah sins. And how does he sin? Anybody remember the story? He gets drunk, and then what does he do? He gets drunk, and then he gets naked. Right? He gets naked, and he is left ashamed. If you've seen the uh, Noah movie with all the 
rock monsters and uh, all that crazy kind of stuff. You see Russell Crowe there towards the end laying on a beach completely naked. That's what's going on there. Uh, so what does that remind you of? That reminds you of they eat from the, the, the fruit of the garden. What has Noah just done? He's drank from the fruit of the garden. He's drank of, uh, of wine. He's gotten drunk, and he's left as a result of that naked and ashamed. You see, again, all of these sort of images, uh, all of this should sound super familiar. When you're reading this story, you should think back. You should see that the, the intent of the author is for you to notice there is this relationship that exists between Adam and Noah. Noah is, in essence, another Adam. Not only because he is kind of recapitulating all these things that happened there in the garden, but also because in a very real sense, he's the father of mankind. Everybody on the boat is either related, is either uh, biologically related to him or related to him through marriage in such a way that everyone, as a result, all of humanity is going to be descended from him as all humanity was descended from Adam. So all these similarities between the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, not only that, but there's also all of this imagery that we fulfilled in the new covenant. It's one of the things that we'll talk about. With all of these, you see all of them are not intended as ends in themselves. They're all intended to find resolution. There's a degree of tension in all of these. There are question marks in all of these that are only answered whenever we see the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's similarities not only with the Adamic covenant, but also with the new covenant the command to be fruitful and multiply. We talked about this last week, that there is, although there is this biological element uh, to it uh, in the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, that now there is this spiritual element, that the primary way that we are to bear fruit and multiply uh, is, uh, is not through bearing progeny, but by proclaiming the gospel. Not to say that, uh, that we don't make disciples of our own kids. Absolutely we do. But the primary way that we are to do it now is that we are to look outward and, uh, and to seek to make disciples of our neighbors and uh, co-workers and all of these sorts of things. So there's this command to be fruitful and multiply through discipleship. You see Jesus himself as the true and better image of God. You see this imagery in the Noahic covenant of the image of God, mankind created in the image of God, and then in Jesus you see the fulfillment, the true and better, the one who was going to restore the image of God uh, for mankind. You see the law of Christ consists in the command to love your neighbor as yourself, and John explicitly connects that with not hating and murdering, which is here in the context of, uh, of Genesis. Jesus is mistaken for a gardener as, uh, as Noah uh, falls into sin in a garden. Jesus is mistaken at his resurrection for a gardener, and in a sense, he is a gardener because he's pruning his vineyard, uh, and Jesus is stripped naked and bears shame for us so that we will not. So you see, Jesus not only becomes the new and better Adam, as we talked about last week, but he's also the new and better Noah as well, that all who are related to him avoid the wrath of God uh, upon the earth. So that's a fifth thing that we can recognize about this text here, that there's not only this relationship that exists between the Noahic covenant and the Adamic covenant, but also with the new covenant that's fulfilled in Christ. That is the resolution to all of these covenants. That's why I separated it and uh, made that little arrow-looking thing. Uh, if you were here earlier, you saw I did another arrow, and it didn't look like an arrow. It looked bad because I'm not an artist. But The sixth thing to note is, uh, is to remember the resolution of the covenant with, uh, with Adam. If you remember, the resolution to the covenant with Adam is that God promises that a seed 
will crush the head of the serpent. I think this helps us. If you recognize this, God promises that a seed, and that seed is explicitly said there in Genesis, it said this seed from this woman, from Eve, a seed of her, an offspring of her will crush the head of the serpent. This helps us to see why this Noahic covenant is unconditional, why it's unconditional. Because there is, no, uh, there is no opportunity, there is no possibility that God is not going to fulfill his commands. That God is going to, again, flood the earth and destroy all mankind. Because if he destroys all mankind, then there is no seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent. So this is why God's covenant is unconditional with them. Because unless, if he destroys, floods the entire earth, unless you know, you were to get like some DNA from a mosquito in amber or something like that, like in Jurassic Park, there's no way to to get the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So you see here why this covenant is unconditional, and God calls it my covenant. He says my covenant over and over again. He he calls it my covenant. There's this aspect of it's, it's possessive, that he unilaterally takes on the provisions and, uh, and the stipulations. Now, there are responsibilities for mankind. We'll talk about those here in a second, that uh, mankind has a responsibility to not murder, to be fruitful, to multiply, all of those sorts of things. But God's faithfulness is not contractually dependent upon man's faithfulness. God will be faithful regardless, but again, that doesn't exclude man's responsibility. So let's look at some of the elements of the covenant and uh, the various responsibilities. So the first uh, sort of element, the first responsibility that man uh, bears, again, God is going to be faithful regardless, but he does command this of man. He says to be fruitful and multiply. What's interesting is if you were to continue on in the story, go out of chapter 9, get into chapter 10, get into chapter 11, you see the exact opposite. Mankind is intended to spread about uh, throughout the earth, and instead, uh, in the story of Babel, what's happening? Mankind is gathering together instead. Instead of spreading out horizontally, they're trying to build themselves up uh, vertically. And, uh, and so like a, a mob all falling over each other, there's this horde of sin that you see within a couple of uh, chapters. There's also this element in which part of the covenant consists that God is now going to put the fear and dread of, uh, uh, of uh, man upon or within the animals. Uh, seems like before this, animals weren't uh, skittish, which makes sense. If you're, if you're Noah and you're trying to herd animals, imagine trying to herd like a skittish armadillo on the ark. Every time you, you like move a couple of feet, it curls up into a ball and it just sits there for an hour. You're never getting anywhere, right? And, uh, and so all of a sudden now there's this fear and dread because along with this is, uh, is going to be the, uh, the provision of uh, animals as food for Mankind. By the way, some people would use the fact that, uh, that God doesn't give animals as man uh, until after the flood as sort of a, uh, uh, a subtle sort of uh, idea that, uh, that vegetarianism or veganism is somehow more pleasing uh, to the Lord. And if you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, go for it. I think you're denying yourself great things like bacon and that kind of stuff. But you don't have the opportunity to do that. If you're going to do that, then do it for some reason other than theology, other than 
the Bible. You can't argue for vegetarianism or veganism or whatever it might be uh, on the basis of, uh, of theology. God explicitly gives animals to mankind to eat. Jesus himself eats fish, and ostensibly he eats lamb and those kinds of things as he was a, uh, a Jew uh, in the first century. Uh, Paul says that we can eat whatever is sold in the meat market without any sort of crisis of conscience. And, uh, and so, again, this, there's not some sort of argument that you can make from theological grounds to the preference for vegetarianism or veganism or whatever. But if you have a health condition, then absolutely go for uh, that. So there's two conditions, though, with mankind uh, being given animals to eat. And the first one is that you don't eat blood. You don't eat blood as a sign for uh, respect for life. And then there's also this differentiation between animals and, uh, and humans. There's this differentiation. There's this recognition that there is a, uh, an infinite divide that exists between mankind and animals. Right? That is a divide that is progressively being blurred in our context and in our culture. But there is this fundamental divide that exists. There's this infinite chasm between the worth and value of uh, animals and the worth and value of mankind because mankind bears uh, the image of God. And, uh, and so ironically, uh, we've talked about this before, if you go to the website of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they have an opinion on everything, right? Literally everything that you can do with an animal, they have an opinion on it, right? They're the ones who like make at the end of a film, no animals were harmed in the film, uh, whatever it might be. But on their website, literally, under the question of abortion, they said, we have no opinion on that. They have an opinion on everything when it comes to animals, but no opinion when it comes to mankind. So this utterly backwards, complete inversion of the created uh, order. So these are the two conditions, though. Animals are given to mankind as food. Man is said not to eat the blood because that is a sign of respect of the sanctity of life. And then there is also uh, this uh, fundamental differentiation that ex should exist between animals and human humans. And then lastly, flowing out of the sanctity of life, there's the establishment of uh, retributive uh, justice. There's this establishment of uh, retribution and, uh, and, in particular, capital punishment. This is actually not just a part of the Mosaic Law. Sometimes we think of this as just being something that we see only in the Mosaic Law. It's not something we only see in the Mosaic Law. We actually see it here all the way back in, uh, in the Noahic uh, Covenant. We also see it moving forward out of the Mosaic Law. We see it in the concept of like Romans 13. And so not to say that the way that uh, any particular nation practices capital punishment is just and right and good, but just the, the concept itself is inherently biblical uh, concept. And the idea there is that uh, humanity, in a sense, owns the animal. They exercise dominion over the animals and thus have the right to kill them. Though other laws are going to specify the limits to that. They can't just abuse them. They can't do whatever they want with them. There's a stewardship that exists there. Uh, but humanity, in a sense, owns the animals and therefore has certain rights over them. But God owns humans. Humans bear their uh, kind of a, a brand, if you will. I have this little nerdy stamp because uh, I'm a nerd. And it, uh, I, I put it on my books and it says, this book belongs to the library of Robert Jeffrey Ashley or something like that. By the way, my first name's Robert. Some deacon asked me the other day, he said, I got a check for, from Robert Ashley. I don't know, is that you? Yes, that's me. 
So uh, I have this little stamp. That's, in essence, what mankind is. We bear the stamp of God. We've been stamped with his image, and so therefore there is this fundamental difference between mankind and humans, and so therefore we don't have the right to defile or to destroy or to deface something that bears God's image. We don't have the right to defile or deface it or to destroy it. So those are the various elements, the various uh, sort of aspects that uh, we bear some responsibility for. But at the heart of it is God's mercy. At the heart of it is God's grace. At the heart of it is God's oath that he would never again cut off the world through a universal flood, a promise that there will always be a seed and always be a remnant because there has to be this ultimate seed, this true seed that is Jesus Christ who is going to cut off the seed of the, the serpent. So let's talk a little bit about the, the parties of the covenant, the promises of the covenant, and then the sign of the covenant. Just read some passages here and you can see the uh, parties of the covenant uh, starting in Genesis 9, 9 through 10. Behold, I establish my covenant Listen to this. These are the parties. My, with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is, it is for every beast of the earth. Genesis nine twelve. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. Genesis nine thirteen. I have set my bow in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Genesis 9.15, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. We could read Genesis 9.16, we could read Genesis 9.17, you see the same sort of idea there. There's this universality uh, to the flood. Again, there is the, there's a covenant within the covenant. Through Shem, there is going to be all of these other covenants, but even with Ham and with Japheth, there is uh, these sort of covenants. But you also see uh, there is this aspect in which the covenant includes even animals. Uh, although unlike in the movie Noah, the primary function there is the covenant that God makes with his people. There is this primary covenant of grace and primary covenant of mercy, which you totally don't see in, uh, uh, in this uh, movie. And so this, this, this repetitive and redundant language over and over and over again, God says, I'm making this covenant with you and with your offspring and with everything. And he says it uh, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, multiple times. He says it over and over and over again. Uh, and, uh, and the point is because we are quick to forget. There is this uh, repetition. There's this redundancy to it. Uh, right now, uh, we have to do eight different medical things for our daughter every single day. We have to do eight different medical things. She has to get an IV infusion, which takes uh, about uh, two hours. She has to uh, get two blood thinners, uh, one in the morning, one at night. She has to get uh, two different doses uh, of eardrops, and she has to take three oral antibiotics. Every single day we have to do that, at least for the next uh, month. And so Casey in particular, has set alarm on her phone to help us remember all of these different things because we can't uh, skip any of them. And so the alarm goes off at all these weird, inopportune sort of moments, but the reason is because we need a reminder. That's the repetition that exists here in this text. It's a, uh, a reminder, but a reminder of grace. As these reminders are reminders of grace for us to help us to remember to love and care for our daughter the way that uh, doctors have required. So this repetition of this language is a reminder of God's 
grace, that those are the parties that all humanity and, uh, and even all of creation is a part of uh, this covenant. And the promise that God makes in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 15, uh, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. Genesis 8, uh, 21, and when the Lord smelled the, ple- smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Genesis eight twenty two. while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So you see the elements of God's promise that he makes. Never again will there be a worldwide flood to cut off all the inhabitants of the earth. There is this continuity with the present order of seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. This is sort of poetic language for the reality that God's not going to destroy uh, the earth. And so if this is the appropriate response to sin, again, we talked about the fact that if you don't think, if you think this is inappropriate, if you think God is overreacting or something like that, then you haven't understood sin. You need to go back and you need to, uh, to, to listen to our teaching on that. You need to go back and listen to preaching from Romans 1 through uh, 3 when we work through that. You need to go back and rebuild. You need to have a stronger homartiology. Uh, but if this is the appropriate response to sin, then what else but grace preserves us? So the Bible is saying we've merited this, this flood. You and I should have been under those waters. We've merited this. We've earned this. We've deserved this. The only thing keeping us from it is God's grace that's signed and sealed by the means of an oath in, uh, in covenant. So let's talk a little bit about the sign of the covenant. Most covenants that God makes with his people have some sort of physical sign associated with that covenant. And, uh, and so we, uh, we saw one last week with the, the baptism of Annalise Landers. And, uh, and then we will talk about one here in a couple of weeks where we talk again about circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's also, in a sense, a sign of the Mosaic uh, covenant. And, uh, and so all kinds of covenants that we see in Scripture. Some of my uh, favorites that I wish we still did in, uh, in the book of, uh, of Ruth, you see there is this covenantal language where part of the tradition in that time was uh, if you wanted to signify or seal a covenant, you had to take off your shoe and give it to somebody else. That's weird, right? If we asked you to come be a member of the church and all you have to do is give us a shoe or something like that. Or in, uh, in the book of Genesis, Abraham is making an oath with or, or calling his servant to make an oath to him. And so his servant has to put his hand under his thigh. Right? That would be really weird if you had to do that all the time. And so there's all these different signs, all these different customs and traditions and rituals that are associated with covenants. Well, the sign of the Noahic covenant obviously is a rainbow. There's no Hebrew word, by the way, for rainbow. It's just the word for a bow, not like in an orchestral sort of sense or like a, a hair bow or something like that, uh, but like a, a warrior's weapon, like a bow and uh, an arrow. And so why a rainbow? Why a rainbow? Well, because it's this sign. I put a quote there that I think is good. It's, I didn't uh, attribute it to anybody because I forgot who wrote it. But uh, it says, The bow is a weapon of war, an emblem of wrath. God will now set it in the heavens as a token of grace. 
The Lord who makes his bow of wrath into a seven-colored arch of beauty to ornament the heavens is the one who will finally command the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. For the Prince of Peace takes pleasure in mercy, and the righteous one delights in grace. So there's, there's this sign of a bow, and the sign is placed in a sacred place. It's placed up in the heavens. In which direction is it pointed? It's pointed upwards, right? In other words, God is the one who is staring down the arrow. If God breaks this, similar to the way that we talked about covenanting, uh, and, and when you cut a covenant, you're walking through it as if to say, may this happen to me, may I, may I be cut into. In essence, what the rainbow is doing is God saying, may I be struck by the arrow if I break my word. In other words, it's unassailable. It's unchangeable. It's, uh, it's undeniable. And so God puts it up there as a, as a symbol that he's laid down his weapons. Now, not laid them down forever, not laid them down uh, in all ways uh, whatsoever, not as if grace has somehow nullified his judgment or anything like that. One day there will be judgment and wrath, but today there's grace, and a rainbow is a sign of that grace. Ironically, it's been co-opted as a symbol of sin, in our culture, but that is the original meaning of it. So I want to talk about a few things that we learn from the Noahic covenant and then some things that we see as it moves into the covenant uh, that God makes uh, with his people in the new covenant, and, uh, and then we'll do some questions. So some of the things that we learn from the Noahic covenant, first off, we see God's covenantal love and mercy and grace. We should see that in all of these. We talked about the fact that uh, some people like to break up all of the covenants into this language of you have covenants of, of work and then you have a uh, covenants of, of grace. And in a sense, what we saw is all covenants are grace. They're God's gracious, redemptive response to sin. And so we see here uh, God's covenantal love and mercy and grace. The language of Isaiah 54, 10, uh, 9 and 10 I think it's beautiful for kind of showing this sort of idea. Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, it says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So one of the things that you should see, although this is a story of wrath, this is a story of judgment, is you should see against that backdrop of wrath and judgment, you should see all the more brightly uh, the, the glory of God's love and mercy and grace shine. A second thing that you should see is that simply starting over isn't the solution. That simply starting over isn't the solution. That even the righteous, even the blameless Noah who walks with God still falls into sin. He still falls into sin. He gets drunk. He gets naked. He gets ashamed. So simply starting over is not the problem because the problem is within mankind. The problem is they're on the boat, not just they're drowning in the waters. The problem is in the heart of mankind. So simply starting over is the solution. It's like me in college. In college, I wasn't a good student, and uh, I didn't know the Lord yet. I certainly didn't know a good work ethic or anything like that. So each semester I would fall further and further behind and I would think if I could just get to next semester, I'll start over. I'll have a clean slate and, and next semester will be different. And it never was. And that's kind of the idea here that simply starting over doesn't help, that something extrinsic is necessary 
that we need this alien righteousness. It's something that we're going to talk, not like alien like E.T. or something like that. Something that is without ourselves, something that is not within, something that comes from without. We need an alien righteousness, um, and we'll talk about that in our sermon. And then as with the covenant with Adam, there is this universal focus, which is interesting because the next three uh, covenants that we're going to deal with, there's all this, there's narrowing of God's covenantal language. It's narrowed down from Noah, it's narrowed down to the line of Shem, and then from there further down into Abraham, and from there further down not just, uh, not Ishmael, uh, but only Isaac and his children, and then it goes down into uh, to Israel. So Isaac's children are Esau and Jacob, and it only goes to Jacob's children, who are the people of Israel. And then from there, all the way down into the tribe of Judah, and then in particular to David. So you see this, this progressive narrowing of the covenant until it goes not only to a particular tribe or to a particular line, but to a particular person that is Jesus Christ. There's going to be this narrowing but here you see this universal uh, focus to it. We've talked about this uh, a number of times uh, before that lots of people think of uh, kind of the church as this parenthesis in God's redemptive plan, but really Israel is the parenthesis. You see here God's plan is for the entire earth to reflect his glory. You see then this narrowing for a season, and then again, go and make disciples of all nations. You see this expansion Uh, Again, so this is the last of these sort of universal ideas. It will then restrict for a few weeks and then spread back out uh, even more. So those are a few things that we learn from the Mosaic, uh, I'm sorry, the Noahic Covenant. And then lastly, some things that we see just with the culmination, the fulfillment, the way that the Noahic Covenant is fulfilled, finds resolution in uh, in the New Covenant. We see that God saves a remnant of his people from his wrath and the consequences of sin. Not those, obviously, who are physically in an ark, but those who are spiritually in Christ. So you see this uh, similarity that exists between what happens in Noah and what happens in the new covenant, that God saves a remnant of his people uh, from his wrath and from the consequences of sin. You see that to reject the preaching of Christ is likened to rejecting the preaching of Noah. You actually see this, this analogy made there in, uh, in the Gospels. That, uh, that those who do so as to reject the preaching of Noah in his days was to faith, face condemnation and wrath and judgment. So to, to, uh, to reject the preaching of Christ today is to invite rejection and judgment and all those kinds of things. And if the blessing of being in Christ is greater than the blessing of being in the ark, then we can imagine that the judgment outside of Christ is even greater than the judgment outside the ark. And then lastly, we see that God will never again destroy the earth by means of a flood, but that one day he will recreate the world in perfection, that the new creation that this story represents will be finally realized in the new creation that Christ brings. So that's a little overview of the Noahic covenant. I want to invite Zachary to come up. We'll do some Q&A, and then we will uh, be done.